Okay, so we'll just walk down to the uh, to the pond edge now. Welcome to Waterlands, a series brought to you by the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, where we explore the watery places that once covered the lands through the stories of people and wildlife that have been shaped by them. So I'll take you to a spot, uh, my favourite spot, which is just up here. I'm Roxy Fairman, a zoologist and filmmaker. For our final episode of the series, we're looking towards the future. What is the radical potential of wetlands? And how can looking into the past help us on the right trajectory? We're with Bristol University PhD student Jack Greenhouch, peering into the depths of some mysterious local ponds. They'd be easy enough to walk past without a second glance, but there's a lot going on for anyone curious enough to discover. Okay, so I know it doesn't look like much, but this is a fantastic spot. We're on the outskirts of Bristol, surrounded on all sides by housing estates, main roads and railway lines. As soon as you walk down this little path, this little muddy track, in the end of a cul-de-sac, you end up in this, this wonderful space with a pond and wildflower meadows. And um, yeah, it's a nice little oasis in the city. But hidden amongst the buildings is the tiny Old Sneed Park Nature Reserve. Jack's been here numerous times over the last year. I'm studying uh, freshwater ecoacoustics, which is this non-invasive way of surveying the life in ponds. And that's by listening. So you can get, get in there with a pond net and thrash around and look at all the beetles and the bugs and the plants in the pond. But that's quite disruptive. By putting this underwater microphone, a hydrophone in, we can find out the diversity or the presence of all these different species just simply by listening. You know, we know a lot about the sounds in the ocean, I mean, whale song and um, now the sounds of coral reefs. We know a lot about the sounds in rainforest ecosystems. But what is much less studied is the, uh, the soundscapes of, of ponds and, and wetlands on our own doorstep. For some reason, they're, yeah, they're just, they just don't get so much love. I'd like to change that. Places like this, ponds like this, are so important because at the moment we're going through a massive biodiversity crisis, along with the climate crisis. And freshwater ecosystems like this one are the most threatened ecosystems on the planet. We're losing wetlands three times faster then we're losing rainforests globally. And since 1970, we've lost 84% freshwater species in the world, which is just shocking, isn't it? So these places are incredibly important. We've got to look after them because they, they hold so much biodiversity. Um, I mean, you can see that when you dig around with a pond that, and you can hear it when you put a hydrophone in. So here I've got a, a just a normal zoom recorder really and then I'm going to attach this uh, hydrophone this is underwater microphone to that and I've got a pair of headphones and, and that's it really you don't need a lot of equipment to, to get going Jack lowers his hydrophone into the pond Okay so I've just put the hydrophone underneath the water now and you know, there's a bit of activity there I can hear some some ticking noises, maybe a few little bits of stridulation, those rubbing sounds from the water boatman. 
The rattling you can hear now is the sound of a water boatman. Oh wow, yeah, I can hear something there. Right, so this really strange sound is uh, the sound of plants respiring. And there's all these oxygen bubbles that come streaming out of the leaves of the plant. And, um, well, what we think, we don't really know this, but what we think is that all the oxygen kind of builds up in the plant. And then when it reaches a certain threshold where the um, concentration of oxygen in the leaf is higher than that in the surrounding water, it all comes rushing out. And that's what you're hearing, this rush of oxygen streaming out of the, the aquatic plant. The most valuable thing about recording the sounds in these environments is it really highlights the diversity that's within them. I mean, standing here, you look at this place and you think, you know, there's pretty much nothing in there, right? Especially at this time of year. And it just looks, looks like a wasteland, really. But there's so much activity going on just underneath the water that you can't see. I think that's perhaps why these, these ecosystems get overlooked so much it's not immediately apparent just how biodiverse they are, how valuable they are. So also in the UK, we've lost a lot of ponds in the agricultural landscape, particularly in places like Norfolk and Suffolk, where there's lots of arable land. After the Second World War, when agriculture became a lot more intensive there was a lot of infilling of historic ponds in, in arable farmed landscape. And these ponds were created um, in the 19th century or, or even earlier as, as marl pits or like clay pits for liming the fields and also for watering cattle and, and building bricks to build houses. And so they served a real functional use, but also they were fantastic for biodiversity, of course because it provides little oases of, of water where aquatic plants and insects and fish and everything can come, but also things like deer, um, anything that drinks water, or birds that feed on the insects that come out the ponds. Almost like a bait ball, you know, in the ocean. It's, it's similar to that, a pond in the landscape. It just attracts all kinds of species near and wide. But due to this intensification of agricultural practices, they were filled in and smoothed over so that we could uh, maximise the, the crop from our land. And we've lost probably about 80%, 90% of ponds in the UK in the last century. But even though they've been filled in, there are remnants of them left, waiting to be, to be restored and, and to be brought back to life. These are evocatively named ghost ponds. A ghost pond is a pond that's been filled in. So to the naked eye, it's just a normal field. But when it rains, or perhaps on a cold, misty morning, water collects in this shallow depression that used to be this pond. And if you know what you're looking for, you can see just this little pool of water collecting where the pond once was. And they can still be brought back to life because there's this layer of pond sediment that was laid down when the pond was, you know, was in full flow and seeds from aquatic plants were falling down. And th those seeds have been preserved in this, this anoxic, this oxygen-poor sediment. 
And these seeds have got a very clever strategy of being able to, to stay dormant for, for tens or hundreds of years even. And the team at University College London have discovered that when you restore these ponds by scraping away some of the agricultural land and re-establishing the natural shape of the pond and crucially revealing this layer of pond sediment containing all the seeds, everything comes back, everything grows back. And by doing this, we've found that really scarce plants have come back to life because of these historic seed banks. I know in Norfolk there are probably about 20,000 ponds, most of which would be, you know, infilled, waiting to come back. And that's just in Norfolk. I mean, I would imagine nationally there's probably, you know, maybe even close to 100,000 plus ponds that that we could bring back. And it's a fairly simple process. It takes an afternoon if you've got the right equipment, which a lot of farmers do. I'm John Chamberlain of Liver Hill Farm Longley, Gloucester. And it is uh, in the Severn Vale. The river is just over that bank. I've been here all my life. I'm the wrong side of 65, so we're doing things a bit differently. And uh, I want to try and make the ponds more active again. This pond was renovated about 35 years ago when we made the island. I was really impressed on how that's really increased the wildlife. There's a lot of natural smallish ponds like this that um, are in the area where all the cattle were drank. But they're just hidden by the hedges in the corners of fields. And I think if they're all opened up, it would just give that extra boost to the wildlife and the feeding of the birds, and, and which is what's good for the countryside. It's about four or five ponds on the place we want to do in time, and that'll leave a bit of a legacy for the future, hopefully. The UK could have many more places like this. This remarkable resurrection of something that had been lost for a long time is a powerful example of what happens when wetlands are restored. Getting into this field um, has has been really cool because I feel like it's well, it's certainly a niche, isn't it? Listening to listening to uh, you know pond sounds, but that's fantastic because I was looking for my little niche in the wider research community, and in doing this by listening to pond sounds, I think I found it. It's kind of given me an identity, um, and I'm you know I love that. But also it's made me so much more aware of the world around me, acoustically. Listening so intently to one place makes you, forces you to try and work out where all these different sounds are coming from, what they might be. And when you've had that experience, you can't help but do it anywhere you are, on the train or walking down the street. So it's, yeah, kind of broadened my horizons really. Jeff Hilton, chief scientist and head of research at WWT, is also thinking about the radical potential of wetland restoration. He reaches far back in the story of the landscape in the process of imagining what could be possible in the future. Britain is fundamentally a wet country, right? It, back in the day, and we're talking, I guess, sort of pre-Roman times, certainly pre, pre-Norman times, in the lowlands of Britain, there were huge tracts of land that were just a swampy wilderness. So you've got the Somerset levels, 
you've got areas down on the sort of Sussex coast, um, the Humber head levels, so where the, where, the, where the Humber comes inland from, from Hull, and above all the Fens in, in East Anglia, but also areas up on the Solway coast and in Lancashire, which were partly coastal. They were a mixture of, of sort of salty and freshwater wetlands that just went on, you know, they were the size of a county. And, and people lived in them. I mean, people used them, that they were a great source of food, but they were vast wildernesses. And in fact, in many ways, you know, the, the big wildernesses of our history were not particularly forests. The, the forests were cleared pretty early, but actually the wildernesses that survived a little bit later into history were some of our wetlands. And this is why you get King Alfred when he was, you know, the last surviving English king. He's, he's, he's hiding up from the Vikings who have conquered most of what would become England. He's hiding in the marshes of Somerset. And that's because these places were huge. They were impenetrable and just awash with wetland wildlife. I mean, it is quite difficult to understand now. We, we think of travelling to a wetland reserve like Slimbridge, which is a few hundred hectares or a few square kilometres. These places were thousands of square kilometres of wetness. And that's before you get into the uplands where you've got huge areas of peatland, which were also, you know, great big box. They were just enormous. But how do we know all this? Well, partly from written Roman accounts of what Britain was like when they arrived here 2,000 years ago. But the answers also lie deep down in the earth itself. The good thing about peat is it is a great preserver of historical artefacts. So there's been some amazing archaeological discoveries in the Somerset Levels, for example, where they've excavated old villages that are well preserved in the peat and and understood this, this sort of wetland life that the people lived in in and amongst the marshes uh, they built these causeways across them they would have been heavily eating the fish and the, and the water birds there there's been some amazing excavations of iron age bronze age villages that are, that are right in what is now the levels i mean what we know as the somerset levels now were uh, essentially below sea level in, in, in large parts. And so when we look at Glastonbury Tor now, Glastonbury it, it derives from a word meaning an island. And that's because it more or less was an island. And in winter, you know, the tides would have come in and sort of salt marshy stuff would have been right to the foot of Glastonbury Tor, which, you know, we now think of as being absolutely miles inland. And yeah, we, we now know there were people living and building these amazing old sort of causeways across the marshes right through prehistory. As we know today, our landscape didn't stay this watery. So what caused it to change? It's basically because we we developed the engineering skills to drain these areas and they are pretty productive for agriculture once they are drained. So there was a huge incentive. So in a way, the, the sort of nadir was reached arguably in, in the 19th century where you know the enthusiasm and incentive and ambition to drain was 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 high but also people were still harvesting wetland wildlife in particular from you know from these remaining places and so during the 19th century we lost a lot of species that were still sort of clinging on up to that point well, marsh harrier white-tailed eagle osprey gray lag goose black-tailed godwits rough they were lost from certainly england in the 19th century In the last 100 years, things have started to turn around a little. This has been down to concerted efforts to protect wildlife in law and society. But Jeff wants us to go further. He knows there's so much more that we could be doing. You've got these tiny little handkerchief nature reserves and and that will do a certain amount for you, but it won't do enough. So on the ecological side, what we're looking at is how do we get 
wetlands that, that are landscape scale, that allow all these natural processes that go on in a wetland, and the, the, the sort of mosaic of habitats that you would get in a natural wetland. How do we get those? And then what species should be in it? What species would have been in it back in the day? Some of those species are really critical to creating the processes, creating the habitats for other species. And so what we're understanding really is you've got to get that sort of complexity back into the system. And we've done a really good job as humans of making very simple ecosystems. Simple ecosystems are not very robust, they're not very resilient, and they don't provide all these benefits that I'm talking about. So we're kind of looking at, okay, how do we get this complexity back? Which species do we need back in there to drive the whole system, make the whole system healthier? And that's where a certain very important species comes into it. The really obvious example is the beaver. So the, the Eurasian beaver, which was a, is, a, is a native British species, it, was, it would have been really widespread. In fact, it would have been basically all over these islands. It was driven to extinction in the Middle Ages, primarily because its, its fur and various other products from the beaver were so valuable that it was just hunted out everywhere. Beavers are what we call a keystone species. So they, they essentially create wetland habitat by, by building dams, but they also build little sort of little dikes out into wetlands and they flood areas. And so they're creating this kind of dynamic sequence of wetland habitats. And part of this, of course, is just make these wetlands as good as they can be. You know, part of, I suppose, some of the sort of uh, my philosophy is wetlands should be as full of species as we can make them. It's kind of a, a I suppose a positive optimistic outlook is why accept them as being, oh, they're pretty nice, you know, they've got some nice stuff to look at. Why not make them as good as they can possibly be with all the species that were there once, could be there, should be there. And so I think we should, you know, we almost, not so much why should we bring this species back as the question should be why shouldn't we? We take a walk with Jeff on the Slimbridge estate. Along the way, Jeff tells us about a wetland species restoration project closest to his heart, bringing curlews back from steep decline. They are just this fantastic sort of symbol of wildness. You know, the call, if you're not familiar with the call, you know, it is this kind of incredible blend of, of sort of wistfulness and melancholy and ecstasy in the same call, and it is, it is just incredible. Curlews are, are one of those lucky things for me where I get to combine my job with, with personal passion so curlews are just the most wonderful birds um they take me back to to my my favorite places they take me back to my childhood in the seven vale where there was kind of this special rare bird that nested and also um the yorkshire dales which is a place i've been going uh, with, with my partner since i was 18 and and, and subsequently with, with our kids who are now uh, about 18 themselves and uh, and the curlews are sort of the soundtrack to the yorkshire dales as well as the uplands, curlews nest on flooded grass meadows during summer. They've not been able to raise enough chicks for years, as they fall victim to predators or get caught up in mowing accidentally. They've been declining dramatically, but the bird's plight has captured the public's attention. If we get the wetlands right, we can save the species, but we can use the species to, to promote the value of wetlands. And we have, you know, we have a, a few hundred curlews lurking around here they make a lovely noise and an inspiring sight it is a bit of a dream if we can get things right for curlews we can do a lot of good for wetlands so yeah concerning times for curlews but also exciting times in terms of the energy that's going to try and save them 
The best way to keep as many species as possible from disappearing is to bring back the wetland habitats that we have lost. Not only benefiting the curlew, but so many other red-listed wading birds that rely on them. That's why WWT are campaigning for 100,000 hectares of wetlands to be created across England and Wales. Find out more at www.org.uk. Waterlands is an 1860 production for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. The producer was Eliza Lomas.